So I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but uh, have you ever known all the words to a song? You may have sang the song for years. You may have sang along with it in church. And then one day you, you realize you have no idea what those words mean. Well, that happened to me this uh, past Friday as I was meditating on this morning's passage, Isaiah chapter 40. The song was the carol, God Rest You Merry Gentlemen. And I thought that the chorus, O Tidings of Comfort and Joy, would make a great title for this sermon. And so I pulled up the song and I read it, and it's at that point I realized I have no idea what God rest you, merry gentlemen, means. It's an odd little sentence if you think about it, but here's what I learned. First, we don't know who wrote this song, but it's old. It might date as far back as the 15th century. The earliest surviving copies, at least in print, are from the 1760s. What we do know is that by 1843, the song was popular enough for Charles Dickens to include two stanzas in it, of it in his ghostly little book, A Christmas Carol. And we also know that there's a lot of confusion about what that opening line means. So I wasn't alone. Much of the confusion, though, this is what I learned, stems from how it is punctuated. And so I know all the kids are excited to get a grammar lesson this morning. So here we go. Here's how a lot of our songbooks print that first stanza. God rest you, comma, merry gentlemen. If you punctuate it like that, then merry becomes an adjective that describes these gentlemen. It means that the gentlemen are merry for some reason. They're happy gentlemen. And I suppose that we're wishing that God would give these happy gentlemen some rest or something like that. But the proper punctuation is this, God rest you merry, comma, gentlemen, which sounds very odd to the modern ear, but it's right. God rest you merry was the old way of saying, may God grant you peace and happiness. There's examples of it in English that go back as far as 1548. Even Shakespeare used it in his plays. It was like saying, gentlemen, may God grant you comfort and peace and happiness. God rest you merry, gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay, for Jesus Christ our Savior was born upon this day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. O tidings of comfort and joy. Those Advent tidings are what this morning's text is about. And my aim then in this message is to speak those tidings to your hearts and to leave you with a wish that God may rest you merry in this season of Advent. This is a message of comfort for believers. This is for lovers of God. Lovers of the God who came and lovers of the God who will come again. And if those words don't describe you, then it's my hope that God will cause these words of comfort to appear so desirable to you that you will seek your entire comfort in this life in Christ alone. 
So if you would, open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, and we're going to take a look at verses 1 through 11. And while you're opening your Bibles, I'll give you some background. You see, just as diamonds are viewed best against a backdrop of black cloth, so the comfort that resounds from the voices within these 11 verses are viewed best against the dark backstory of this text. Hezekiah, the king of Judah, refused to pay tribute to the king of Assyria. To force Judah into submission, the Assyrians attacked, decimated the cities of Judah, and then marched up to the gates of Jerusalem. And the Assyrians would have leveled the city if it were not for a miraculous intervention by the angel of the Lord. He struck dead 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians, and the Assyrian army retreated. But the invasion by the Assyrians remained a very real threat throughout the remaining days of King Hezekiah's reign. Sometime after this happened, King Hezekiah fell ill. Many of you know this account. The prophet Isaiah, whose name, by the way, means the Lord saves, something the king would have done well to pay attention to. Not Egypt, not Babylon, but the Lord saves. Isaiah told Hezekiah to set his house in order, for he was about to die. Upon hearing Isaiah's words, Hezekiah wept bitterly, and he begged God to spare him. And amazingly, God had mercy on Hezekiah and gave him 15 additional years of life. And the rest of the background comes from Isaiah chapter 39. Around the same time, the son of the king of Babylon. So first the threat is Assyria, now enter Babylon. The king's son sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah because they had heard that he had been sick and had miraculously recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, the text says. And that makes sense because Assyria was still a threat and powerful allies like the Babylonians might prove helpful to Judah. Hezekiah then showed them his treasure house. The silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in the storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. From the other accounts of this in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, we find out that there was a sense of pride in what Hezekiah was doing, sinful pride. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah, and he said to them, to him, what did these men say, and from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, they've come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, what have they have seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, well, they have seen all that is in my house. There's nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up to this day shall be carried to Babylon. 
Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought there will be peace and security in my days. These are the dark days. Divine justice is being dealt out. The people of Judah up to this point have repeatedly violated the covenant of their God. They have forsaken their God and they have sold their souls to the gods of the nations around them. Much of Judah has been annihilated by the Assyrians, and now the Lord declared that he will employ Babylon as his instrument of judgment against Jerusalem and against its king. Nothing will be left. All the treasures of Jerusalem and thousands of its inhabitants will be dragged into exile. That is the dark backdrop of Isaiah chapter 40. And knowing that helps us feel something of the wonder of these words. These words shoot into the scene like a shaft of light into the dark of night. These are tidings of comfort and joy. They are comfort and joy to a miserable people under the weight of massive loss and the dread of impending judgment. Between chapters 39 and 40, we move prophetically through time. And though these tidings would no doubt bring comfort to those living at the time they were written, this is a special message of comfort for those in exile, which was still 150 years or more into the future. And it is a message of comfort for God's people today. Our first two verses capture the intent of the chapter. It is a message of encouragement, of comfort for the people of God. The verses that follow, we hear three anonymous voices crying out to the exiles, and each voice adds to the message of comfort for these suffering people. Verse 1, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. When Jerusalem fell in 586, the Babylonians forced more than 10,000 Judeans into captivity. Their exile would last for 70 years. The Babylonians burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and the houses in Jerusalem. Every great house in the city was burned. And further, they broke down the walls of Jerusalem herself. Those who survived and their children and their grandchildren are the ones to whom God orders his prophets to deliver this sweet message of comfort. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. He repeats that word comfort like an echo to stress the compassion he has for his people. He righteously inflicted punishment on them for their rebellion. And yet the penalty has been paid and his desire is for his people to find comfort. And don't go past that little two-letter word, my. God calls these people, my people. 
They and their fathers forsook him for cheap idols carved by human hands. They were unfaithful to him for generations and had given him every reason to reject them forever. That there was a remnant and that he had any compassion for them whatsoever is unimaginable mercy. But that he owns them as his own people, that is pure grace. They could not have been more miserable or more undeserving of love than they were. And yet God calls them my people. Then God tells the prophets to deliver this message in a particular tone. Verse 2. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Speak tenderly to her and cry to her. And give her three great reasons to be comforted. One, her warfare is ended. It is over. I'm going to take you home now, he says to his people. Two, her iniquity is pardoned. Your sin against me was egregious, but I forgave you. And three, tell her that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The penalty for your sins, Jerusalem, has been paid in full. It takes no imagination to see the prophetic reality to which this shadow points. There is a captivity, brothers and sisters, far more brutal than what the Babylonians perpetrated against the Judeans. It is the captivity of sin. All of mankind has been enslaved by this enemy. That one trespass of the man Adam led to the condemnation of all men. There are no exceptions among us. And yet among those held captive by the enemy, there is a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. These are the ones to whom God sends this sweet message of comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Though we deserve righteous punishment for our rebellion, yet God desires our comfort. God calls us his people. Like Judah, we and our fathers forsook him for cheap idols our hearts continually chase after the gods of control, power, comfort, and approval. We have given this God every reason to reject us forever. That we have survived to this day. And that he has any compassion for us whatsoever is unimaginable mercy. But that he owns us and calls us my people that, brothers and sisters, is pure grace. We could not have been more miserable and more undeserving of the love of this God, and yet he calls us my people. What kind of love is this? Take comfort, then, brothers. For the same reason these exiles could take comfort. Our warfare is ended. Take heart, Jesus said, I have overcome the world. 
God himself disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Our, our iniquity is pardoned. Yes, our sin against God was egregious, but he forgave us. And we who were dead in our trespasses and sins and the uncircumcision of our flesh, God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And he did that by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, Colossians 2. And thirdly, we have received from the Lord's hand double for our sins. The penalty for our sins has been paid in full. And our comfort comes from the fact that we have received the benefit of the penalty paid. And it is all the more glorious that someone else absorbed the full weight of the penalty on our behalf. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And that big word, propitiation, means that he is the full appeasement of God's righteous wrath against sinners. He is the propitiation for our sins. Take comfort, people of God. We are his people. The war is over. Our sins are forgiven. The retribution for our sins has been paid in full at the cross. No further punishment will be required. These are truly tidings of great comfort and joy. And just in case you think I'm getting way off track with this passage and reading something into it that's meant for someone else, listen to the Scottish Baptist minister, Alexander McLaren. He takes the same view of the passage. Here's what he wrote. Of course, the captivity is in the foreground of the prophet's vision, but the wider sense of the prophecy embraces the worst captivity of sin under which we all groan. And the divine voice bids his prophets proclaim that Jehovah comes. He comes to set us free. He comes to end the weary bondage. And he comes to exact no more punishment for sins. Good tidings indeed. In verses 3 through 5 now, we hear the first of three voices. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. The first voice is that of a herald. He is the forerunner of a grand procession, and he shouts, prepare a road for the coming king. Prepare for the advent or the arrival of our God. Between Babylon and Jerusalem lies a wilderness of mountains and canyons to be traversed. This is a highway for God. The procession is his. Prepare the way for him. Unless we think that this people who've been laid waste by war could muster the will and strength for this kind of road work, note the shift in language. 
It moves from the command to prepare to the reality of what shall be done. Verse 4, every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. The message is this. Prepare, yes. But Jerusalem, nothing in this wilderness, no mountain peak, no crevasse, No man, no army of men will hinder the arrival of our God. He will enter Jerusalem, and he will dwell among men. There can be no doubt that this first herald is a shadow of John the Baptist, the true forerunner of the grand procession of God as he enters Jerusalem. John shouts, prepare a road for the advent of our God. In those days, wrote Matthew, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So two questions about this advent, about this arriving of our God. What is the substance of it, and what is the scope of it? Verse 5, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The substance of the of God's coming is the display or the revealing of his glory. And this revealing is no private event for Jews alone. No, all flesh, Jews and Gentiles alike, will witness the the blinding brilliance of God's glory. The refulgence, and I hate to use that word because nobody uses it anymore. The refulgence, it means the radiating, the shining forth, or the overflowing, or the communicating of God's infinite goodness and his infinite greatness. That is the glory that will be revealed at the coming of our God. And this was the glory to which John the Baptist bore witness. The word That's Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. And the writer of Hebrews puts this glory in even more vivid terms. He, that is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So to a people like these exiles, under the oppression of a foreign power, the fact that nothing will hinder the arrival of their all-powerful God, and that his arrival means the revealing of his glory for all to see, oh, that is truly comforting news. But far more glorious than that is the comfort we have as lovers of this God, as we reflect on the reality of the first advent. Jesus came, Emmanuel, God with us, 
Nothing can stop him from accomplishing his mission. King Herod couldn't stop him. His arrival in that little town of Bethlehem, clothed in human flesh, meant nothing less than the revealing of the infinite goodness and the infinite greatness of God. And it was there for all to see, for Jews and Gentiles. It is the message to be preached to all the nations. Nothing will get in his way. That is good news of great joy for all people. We hear the second voice in verses 6 through 8. What resounds from the mouth of this second voice is but an extension of the first. The first voice tenderly assured us that God's, that assured God's people that his arrival and his revealing of his glory was certain. Nothing will get in his way. But how can war-torn, crushed exiles be sure of that? How can we believe that it's true? Their confidence comes from the final phrase of verse 5. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Not the mouth of an earthly king or a politician promising what they cannot deliver. But the Lord has spoken. The second voice takes this truth and impresses it further. He too is a herald, and his message of comfort is this the word of God is immortal. Verses six through eight. A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I have a special type of grass on my front lawn. Like clockwork, on the very first 90-degree 90 90 degree day, um, in July, every single year, it turns brown and dies. And it will not turn green again until September, no matter what I try. Grass withers, flowers fade. And understand this people are grass. Surely, the passage says, surely people are grass. Let that sink in. We and all that we are, all that we possess, our position in the company, our money in the bank, our education, our land, our truck, our fishing gear, our eye gadgets, fading flowers at best. Even the most powerful kings and political rulers on earth are grass-like and frail. Like the flower of grass, the rich man. This is James. We see exactly where James got this language. Like the flower of grass, the rich man will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. 
so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Where then shall we seek comfort and confidence? Seek it not from the mouths of mere men who are here today and gone tomorrow, but let us, brothers and sisters, take comfort from the unfading, never-failing word of God. Take comfort from the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The one who is called the word of God. He is the one that claimed heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. If I said that, you would think I was crazy. But Jesus said it, and 2,000 years later, here are those words. Holding true, we can trust him. Here's Alexander McLaren. He summarizes it like this. An hour of the deadly hot wind will scorch the pastures, and all the petals of the flower among the herbage will fall. So everything lovely, bright, and vigorous in humanity wilts and dies. One thing alone remains fresh from age to age, the uttered will of Jehovah. His breath kills and makes alive. It withers the creatural. I didn't even know that was a word. It withers the creatural. It speaks the undying word. So take comfort, brothers and sisters. The word of our God will never fail. What he promised, he will fulfill. As they say, you can bank on it. Lastly, we hear the third voice crying out in verses 9 through 11. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. It is the voice of Jerusalem herself. After receiving her God, she is told to go and proclaim the good news to all the cities surrounding her. God has arrived. Jerusalem now bids all the cities of Judah to come and behold their God. The message of comfort now extends far beyond these battered exiles and the broken walls of Jerusalem. Take comfort, all cities of Judah. Your God is here. And pay attention to the manner in which their God comes. Verse 10. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense is before him. Your God, O Jerusalem, and all surrounding cities has arrived, and he is distinguished by two traits. At first sight, these two traits or qualities appear nearly contradictory, but oh, how beautiful and complimentary and comforting they are to the people of God. First, he comes with might. He is the mighty God. All the inhabitants of the earth compared with him are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. 
And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Our God is mighty, and he comes in might. Second, this infinite might of our God is for us. It is for his people, not against them. God is tender toward his people. His might is that of a strong but gentle shepherd. Verse 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. God is both the mighty king of his people and the tender shepherd of his flock. What a picture. He is the great shepherd king. This then is the message of the third and final voice. Take comfort, Jerusalem, and shout the good news from the tops of the mountains. God has, a, has arrived. He comes with the might of a conquering king and with the tenderness of a shepherd. There's something of both lion and lamb about him. Indeed, there is no God like our God. Let me close by doing this. Let me simply catalog what we've learned from these 11 verses. Let me catalog these tidings of comfort and joy so that you can reflect upon them during this Advent season. Against the dark backdrop of our captivity, our enslavement in the wilderness, our bondage to sin and death, we can take comfort. We are his people. Take comfort. The war is over. Sin and death have been destroyed. Take comfort, brothers and sisters. Our sins are forgiven. And the retribution for our sins has been paid in full at the cross. No further punishment is required. Take comfort. Nothing in this wilderness of sin will hinder Jesus from accomplishing his mission. Take comfort. The advent of God means nothing less than the revealing of his infinite goodness and his infinite greatness for everyone to see. Take comfort not from the mouths of mere men who are here today and gone tomorrow, but take comfort from the unfading, never-failing word of God. Take comfort, brothers and sisters. The word of the Lord is immortal. What he promised, he will fulfill. And take comfort that God has entered his city and he now dwells among men. He comes with the might of a victorious king and with the tender heart of a shepherd. He is our great shepherd king. And then let us follow the lead of the third voice, which looks suspiciously like the mission of the church on earth, doesn't it? Let us go up to a high mountain and lift up our voice and proclaim the message of the gospel of the glory of God. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the nations, behold your God. And let our message be like that of the old carol. God rest you, Mary. 
gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay, for Jesus Christ, our Savior, was born upon this day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. O tidings of comfort and joy. Let's pray. Father, these are great words of comfort for your people. Father, I know that they were of great comfort when they were written. I know that they were of great comfort to the exiles. But, Father, we see so much more of the glory that you have revealed that we stagger under the beauty of the comfort of these words. That you would call us your people. That you would condescend. Send your son. Father, as we reflect on Advent, Father, may the wonder of these words, may they never, may they never escape us. Father, may we constantly be thinking upon these things and giving you glory. Father, comfort your people this morning with these words. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen.